Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured, that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Today, we continue our look back at National Lutheran Schools Week. All right. Well, we have hit the top of the hour, so we will go ahead and get started here. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm, I'm sure uh, more of our uh, Wittenberg Academy uh, families and community will be joining in as, as we uh, proceed forward. Uh, welcome back to Wittenberg Academy's National Lutheran Schools Week uh, speaker series. We had a fantastic uh, presentation yesterday, and I'm really looking forward to today's presentation as well. For those who were unable to join us yesterday, the theme for this year is In All Things, and that theme comes from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I'm not going to read that whole passage again today, uh, but would certainly encourage you uh, to take a look at that um, as, as you have opportunity. I am thrilled uh, to introduce today's speaker, uh, Reverend Anthony Dodgers. Uh, Pastor Dodgers is husband to Betsy, and he shepherds the flock at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Charlotte, Iowa. He is a contributor to the Godestines blog and has appeared on the Godestines crowd, the podcast of Godestines. If you listen to the Wittenberg Hour, the podcast of Wittenberg Academy, an episode is going to post today. Yes, the Wittenberg Hour is back, uh, is going to post today featuring uh, Pastor Dodgers. And uh, as if that is not enough, we can't get enough of Pastor Dodgers. Uh, he is also one of the co-hosts of Unshelved, uh, the forthcoming literature slash book club podcast of Wittenberg Academy. So welcome, everyone. Uh, I am excited that all of you are here. And without further ado, Pastor Dodgers, thank you for joining us today. And the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Jocelyn. And uh, I guess after today, you can decide for yourselves if you can't get enough of Pastor Dodgers or if you've had enough. Uh, that's, that's up to you. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. That might have sounded not quite the way you're used to hearing that first verse from Genesis. Typically, we say God created the heavens and the earth, but this was translated from the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when the Greek-speaking Jews translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, 
they used a Greek word, poieo, which means to make, instead of the word katidzo, which means to create. Now, make, create, that might not sound like a very big difference, but the Greek word poieo, meaning to make, also gives us other Greek words like poiema, that is a, a work, a made thing, and also poietas, poietes, that is a maker. And this is where we get words like poem and poet. Poiema, poem, something that is made, poietes, poet, a maker. Just a side comment here. Uh, today, we think of poetry as something with metered verse and rhyme, but the older definition of poetry was any kind of literary art. And so that's kind of how I'm using it today. This connection with God's work in creating and a poet in writing a poem goes even further when we see how God created, how he made the poem of this world. He spoke, right? He made with his words. God is the great poet. He is the first maker. And we are made in his image and likeness. And so that means we do things like him. We imitate him. We create as we were created. We make poems. We tell stories because we were made by the poet, the author of creation. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote on this topic in an essay called On Fairy Stories. He said, we make in our measure and in our derivative mode because we are made, and not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. We can actually see this right away at the beginning in Eden, in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter one, God makes the world by speaking. He creates through his word, which we know is Christ. He says, let there be, and his word makes it so. And then in Genesis chapter two, what's the first thing, the very first thing that we see Adam doing? He gives names to the animals. He's made in the image of the poet, the made in the image of the maker who uses words. And so Adam also makes by using words. He makes names for the animals. He calls them what they are, and his word makes it so. This is even more obvious than when God brings Eve to Adam. Adam names her. He says, she shall be called woman. He even literally makes a poem for her. At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so, uh, guys, if you are uh, dating a girl or, you know, when it's time for you to get married, um, it won't hurt to read, a, read some poetry to her, or maybe even if you're talented enough, write some poetry to her or about her. That's what Adam did for his bride. The Scottish pastor and uh, author George MacDonald was a huge influence on authors like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. 
And MacDonald wrote that the imagination of man is made in the image of the imagination of God, because everything of man must have been of God first, end quote. So our ability and our desire to express ourselves through stories and art, it comes originally from God. This ability and desire for stories is related to what we call the imagination. Well, let's, let's pause for a minute and ask, what is the imagination? Again, in his essay on fairy stories, Tolkien defines imagination literally image making. More completely, he says that imagination is the faculty, it's the ability in the mind of forming mental images of things not actually present. Uh, I'm going to quote a few more times from this essay by Tolkien. So if I do quote Tolkien, uh, and I don't tell you where it's from, uh, you can know it's from his essay on fairy stories. But what makes imagination then different from observation? Well, you can observe things in front of you, things that you meet, you interact with, with your five senses. That would be observation. But you imagine things that you can't reach by your five senses, five senses. You imagine things that are not present. And this can really apply to all art forms, uh, you know, painting or music or sculpture, but Tolkien connects it especially with literary art, art that uses words. And that's because MacDonald and Tolkien see God's creation of the world as the first instance of imagination where God conceived of something in his mind that did not exist. And then he made it by speaking it by his word. And so when we tell a story, what we're doing is we are imagining something that does not exist. And then we make it by using our words. This is what Tolkien calls sub-creation. He says that we are sub-creators like we are little creators under the great creator. And we can only make things. We can only tell stories because first we were made. And we can't create out of nothing like God did, but we use the things of this created world to make from it. God's created world inspires our creations. Our stories are drawn from, derived from God's original story. And so going back to the vet, that very first example of sub-creation then, back to Adam naming the animals. He didn't, he didn't make the animals themselves, right? He didn't create the lion or the giraffe or the dog, but he made their names. He didn't create a new thing in the world, but based on God's creation, he imagined the animal's identity, what that animal really was, and he created that identity with his words. Now, you can use your imagination with things like that in this created world, but Tolkien sees fantasy as the prime example for what he calls sub-creation, because in fantasy, we are, creati we are creating things 
like elves or dragons and magic rings. And those things, so far as we know, do not exist in this world. Our imagination can be inspired by God's creation, what we see, what we experience. But within our imagination, then, once we've taken these things into our mind, we are able to alter them in a fantastic way to the extent that we, be, we can become little makers of our own little worlds. Tolkien calls this a kind of enchantment from God's primary world, the world that we see and live in, we can make our secondary worlds in our minds and in our stories. Tolkien writes, we may cause woods to spring with silver leaves and rams to wear fleeces of gold and put hot fire into the belly of the cold worm. In such fantasy, as it is called, new form is made, fairy begins man becomes a sub-creator. So now that we've come to the topic of fantasy literature, the question might arise, especially among Christians, isn't fantasy deceptive? Isn't it kind of lying in some way? We've already sort of admitted that it's, that it's not, not real. Uh, some people would say fantasy is not true. Uh, I would not actually be one of those people. I believe that it is possible for something to be true, even if it's not technically real. And I'm just going to let you ponder that for now. Um, but I'll admit that fantasy stories could possibly deceive people. Still, I don't think it's very likely Neither did Tolkien, neither did C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, in his book called uh, An Experiment in Criticism, he said that children are not deceived by fairy tales. They are often and gravely deceived by school stories. Adults are not deceived by science fiction. They can be deceived by stories in women's magazines, end quote. Uh, I think we could broaden his examples from school stories, the kind of sort of factual stories that children used to read in school, uh, from school stories and women's magazines. Let's broaden that to Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. And, and let's just include every other major news source out there. We often think when we interact with people on those platforms, when we listen to the news, we often think that we're getting the truth. But many times we can be deceived. The truth is often edited. It's presented in such a way that only one side of the narrative comes through. Do people, do most people post pictures on Instagram of what they look like immediately when they get out of bed in the morning? I mean, most people uh, post pictures on Instagram that make them look good, right? It's their best version of themselves. It's not the whole truth. It's the same with a lot of the news. It can give one version, one side of the story, but not the whole truth. The problem is we go to these places assuming that they're going to give us an accurate picture. And so often we are taken in. We don't realize that we're 
being fed something that's not totally true. But fairy stories and science fiction don't try to convince you. They don't, they don't try to pretend that there's something they're not. They don't try to pretend that they're reporting real events. Uh, we read fairy stories knowing what they are. We know they're fairy stories. And so we're not deceived. And that's true, I think, of children and, and adults as well. Tolkien agrees with this point from, from C.S. Lewis, and, and he says that he admits that fantasy can be carried to excess. This is another quote here. He says, fantasy can be ill done. It can be put to evil uses. It may even delude the minds out of which it came. But of what human thing in this fallen world is that not true? Men have conceived not only of elves, but they have imagined gods and worshipped them. And they have made false gods out of other materials, out of their nations, their banners, their monies, even their sciences and their social and economic theories have demanded human sacrifice. Abusus non tolit usum. Fantasy remains a human right. Tolkien uses that Latin phrase that some of you might be familiar with, that the abuse of a thing does not take away the proper use of that thing. Tolkien admits we can be deceived by stories. We can be deceived by all kinds of things, all kinds of language. And we can use our imagination to create things that are much worse than fantasies. We use our imagination in ways that we create false gods out of almost everything in our life, just like Martin Luther says in the small catechism, that whatever we fear, love, and trust in becomes, becomes a false god. So the imagination and fantasy can be misused, but that is not an argument for getting rid of fantasy itself. So then what's the good of fantasy literature? What's the good of using the imagination to create something otherworldly? Well, in one way, playing in another world, that can help us make sense of this world. By going into the fantasy world where our lives are not at stake, where we're dealing with experiences that we aren't actually going through, we're actually more free to face our fears. We're more free to discover our virtues and to experience emotions and then come back into this world, but changed. In another way, fantasy can give us new eyes to see this world. Listen to how Martin Luther uses his imagination as he ponders the beauty, the beauty and the goodness of God's creation. Luther wrote, Pythagoras was considered a heretic because he heard the wonderful song of the stars. But one who is not blind will see the heavens so wondrous that one could die for very joy over the sight. 
If we had eyes and ears, we would be able to see and hear what the wheat says to us. Rejoice in God, eat and drink, use me and serve your neighbor. Soon I will fill the barns. If I were not deaf, I would hear what the cows say. Be glad, we bring butter and cheese, eat and drink and give to others. And so the hens say, we lay eggs for you. And the birds, be joyful, we are hatching chicks. And the sows, the pigs, grunt for joy because they bring pork and sausages. So speak all the animals to us, and everyone should say, I will use what God has given and I will give to others. End quote. Fantasy stories can give us new eyes, the right kind of eyes and ears to see the, the real fantasy all around us, the real wonder of God's creation. And in so doing, these stories also help to show our place in the cosmos as sub-creators, that is, creatures who are actually made in the image of the creator. We find out that we are, we are in a unique place in the world. We are under the lordship of God, and yet we exercise lordship over the rest of creation. That's what Adam was doing when he was uh, sub-creating, when he was naming the animals. He was exercising his lordship over them. And there, this shows us, uh, this helps show us that there is a design, that there is an order to this world that God made this world to serve us, to serve his children. So much of modern science and just the modern world in general would tell us that this universe is, is nothing but chaos. It's nothing but chance. And we can't know or under, really understand any of it. But reading fantasy stories and, and imagining our own fantasies can actually help us to see that there is a maker behind this world, that there is purpose and meaning in the way the universe works. These stories can help us really learn to appreciate that the world is not a chaos, it is a harmony. However, I just mentioned that the modern world tells us that we live in a chaotic, random universe, right? And that is what many modern stories do put into our minds and into our hearts. So let's think about this. What makes a bad story? I'm going to quote Tolkien again here. He says, if men were ever in a state in which they did not want to know or could not perceive truth, facts, or evidence, then fantasy would languish until they, until they were cured. If they ever get into that state, it would not seem at all impossible. Fantasy will perish and become morbid delusion. Now, I get the feeling here that uh, Tolkien is actually being a little sarcastic and implying that 
we were already in that state in his day where people, people do not want to know the truth. They can't even see, see the truth when it's right in front of them. Uh, where we, we don't really create f- true fantasy, that is, where we do not create like our creator, but we instead uh, create morbid delusion. Uh, I think if that was true in Tolkien's day, that's 60 or 70 years ago, uh, then what about now? When people cannot see uh, people cannot see that uh, men and women are different, and yet they think boys can change into girls. Um, there's just so many contradictions there, uh, so many delusions uh, all tied up in just one little sentence. It's, it would take a different presentation to untie it all. Bad stories rebel against God's creation. Instead of reflecting his image, instead of reflecting what God has made, instead of reflecting the order and the beauty of the world, uh, bad stories deliberately work against God's world. Uh, now, I, I, I personally used to really like the Marvel movies, the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe I thought was pretty cool. Uh, I would still like to, to like them, but... Um, I've become a little disappointed over the last year or two in some of the things they've put out. Uh, The more that some of the Marvel movies and others like them, the more they fight against things like fatherhood and chivalry and try to, uh, you know, dismantle our heroes and, and kind of tell the story that there's no great men. There's no real heroes out there. Um, I'm more and more convinced that their stories are working against God's creation rather than for it. Uh, They are not sub-creating, they're just subverting. They're trying to undermine uh, God's stories. Uh, Sadly, many storytellers today are what Tolkien would call the orc-minded. So, you know, if you've you know the Lord of the Rings, the orcs, and how they are a twisted uh, form, uh, a creature, uh, a bent and evil creature, uh, even descended from sort of corrupted elves. Uh, we learn in some of the uh, some of the Tolkien mythology. The the orc minded Tolkien calls uh, people in our world this. Uh, they cannot create. They can only corrupt, just like the orcs around Isengard and Fangorn Forest. They did, they did not create anything. They just chopped down, right? They just destroyed the forest um, and corrupted it for evil purposes. Well, uh, at the back of the Lord of the Rings, maybe I don't know if you've read uh, the back stuff there, all the appendices, but some of it's interesting. In Appendix F, at the back of the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien is talking about all the different languages of Middle Earth. And he says, orcs and trolls spoke as they would without love of words or things. They spoke without love. Quote, uh, continuing the quote here, he says, their language was actually more degraded, more filthy than I have shown it. 
I do not suppose that any will wish for a closer rendering, though models are easy to find. Much the same sort of talk can still be heard among the orc-minded, dreary and repetitive with hatred and contempt, too long removed from good to retain even verbal vigor, save in the ears of those to whom only the squalid sounds strong. He says, there's a lot of orc-minded talk these days. It's, it's dreary, it's repetitive, it carries lots of hatred and contempt. Uh, it's not even very moving. Uh, it's not even a, a strong way of speaking. The only people that think it's impressive are people who like the squalid, who like the nasty, uh, the people who think in order to really emphasize something, you have to use a bunch of four-letter words to get your point across, right? This is what Tolkien calls the orc-minded. Um, and from what I've seen, I hope it don't upset too many of you here, but uh, a lot of what is presented as YA fiction, young adult fiction, uh, it seems to be pretty orc-minded that it doesn't have a great love for words or things, but it really just wants to tear down what is good in God's sight and replace it with something twisted. Now, I'm not saying that you should not watch Marvel movies or that you should not read the latest YA novel or anything like that, but I do think we all need to practice discernment that as we, as we read, as we absorb these stories. And the only way to, to do that, the only way to be, to be good at, at discerning the, the good from the bad, the true from the false, uh, is by knowing the real deal. Compare, and if you know the real deal well enough, then whenever something false comes along, you'll immediately be able to spot, oh, this is where it goes, goes wrong. So let's return to truth goodness, and beauty. What makes a good story? Why do good stories endure? In Colossians chapter 1, St. Paul wrote that Christ is the image of the invisible God, and all things were created through, through Christ and for Christ. And so, as we've said before, when we, when we create, when we imagine we are already in some way reflecting that image of God. In a way, authors, storytellers, can't help but reflect Christ's story because they are made by Christ, even though they are fallen, even though they might be unbelievers. In, in all of his writing on this, Tolkien admits that we are fallen, and so we do misuse the gift of creativity, the gift, the gift of, of storytelling. But even though it might be misused, even though it is fallen, it's still there. Uh, and so in some ways, storytellers can't help but reflecting Christ. At some level, just by being human, we still recognize the harmony of creation that there is a design to this world and so that things work in a certain way, which means stories are going to work in a certain way. Uh, and they recognize in some way the beauty of the redemption story. When our stories that we tell 
actually reflect some, some part of Christ's story that is either in creation or in redemption in his, his life, death, and resurrection, well, then we are really on to something true, good, and beautiful, and something enduring. So let me give you a few examples. I'm going to start with a myth. Maybe you know the myth of Persephone. She was the daughter of Demeter, and she was captured by Hades, the lord of the underworld. So she's taken down into the underworld to be his bride. And her mother, Demeter, uh, weeps and is, is uh, at a loss because her daughter has been taken away. And she, Demeter is the goddess of the harvest, and she, she curses the earth, and the harvests fail. Uh, the weather turns bad, and there's no produce in the land until finally Zeus intervenes. And so a compromise is made that for half the year, Persephone will live with Hades in the underworld, and that means it will be fall and winter on earth. And then for the other half of the year, she will live with Demeter, her mother, and it will be spring and summer. Why is that an enduring story? Well, maybe because it's based on nature. It's based on what people observed in the creation, in the pattern, in the reliability of, of this created world. It's based on the patterns of summer and winter, of birth and death, but also then birth, death, and new life or rebirth. And I would say it's even in a way based on Christ. The story of Persephone spawned some religious rituals in, uh, among many of the Greeks connecting planting time to harvest time and how, uh, you know, the seed, uh, the, the grain sort of dies, but then comes back to life again in the growing. And it's possible. I don't, there's no way for us to know this for sure. The Bible doesn't say this specifically, but in John chapter 12, some Greeks, some Greeks come to see Jesus and it's possible he actually uses this myth as an illustration. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That kind of metaphor isn't really seen actually in the Old Testament very much. And so that's why some scholars think that he might actually be drawing on sort of this Greek tradition. And either way, Jesus and the Greeks are both looking at nature and, and using nature as a metaphor for something true. And so that's why those sorts of little stories, those myths or parables uh, do endure. How about another one, maybe even uh, more common? Why do we love stories where the guy gets the girl? I mean, this is everything from fairy tales with the knights rescuing the princesses to, uh, the, you know, the modern romantic comedy movie. We always, we always are cheering on, you know, that they get together, that the guy is going to get the girl. Why does that resonate with us so much? 
Well, not just because we all want to get married and live happily ever, ever after, but the Bible tells us the real reason this resonates with us, the real reason this kind of a uh, story speaks to us is because every time the guy gets the girl, every time there is a marriage, that is a reflection of Christ and his bride, the church. Even among people who have no idea who Christ is, that is how God designed the world to reflect his relationship with his bride, the church. A couple other quick examples from modern times. So modern uh, myths, we might call them, or modern fairy tales like Star Wars or Harry Potter. They can do this type of thing too. Both of, both of these uh, series are, they tell stories about fathers and sons sacrifice, redeeming love, love that can, can change. I'm not claiming that either, you know, Star Wars or Harry Potter are perfect reflections of God's truth. And if I wanted to say another controversial thing in this presentation, I'll, I'd, I'd say that the, that the very newest Star Wars trilogy is actually goes against what the original ones were, were doing in showing these truths. But nothing reflects God's image perfectly. Nothing that we create is going, to is going to reflect the story of God perfectly, except for Christ, except for God's word. Christ is the true image of the invisible God. And yet, we can't deny that even dim reflections are reflecting God, even our image imperfect stories have their source in God. All good stories embody these universal themes. They show what is true for all humans, what speaks to all humans, and ultimately all humans get meaning and purpose from God and from what God does in this world, in creation, and in Christ. And so all these stories echo that. Northrop Fry is a professor of literature, uh, and he wrote this uh, little phrase that I think sums up uh, sums it up pretty pretty well. He says that the poet's job is not to tell you what happened, but what always happens, not what did take place, but the kind of thing that always does take place. So again, we're not coming to these stories for the news, for a, you know, sort of a factual report of something. We can go other places for that. The reason that good stories endure is because they reflect, they speak to something that is true, not just for a group of people in one time or place, but something that is true for all of us. I'll give you one last example of this particularly, uh, although this, this isn't really a story exactly, it's actually a, a poetry, and that's the Psalms. The Psalms are poems or songs or prayers, and they were true for David, of course, who wrote many of them. They were, they were true for the other poets who wrote them. But the Psalms are just as true for Christ, if not more so. 
Christ fulfills the Psalms and they actually become his own prayers. The next time you're reading or praying one of the Psalms, imagine that it's Christ speaking. As you're reading the Psalm and praying, praying those words, imagine that it's Jesus speaking. And almost every time, those words are going to line up pretty easily with his life. I think you'll see how there's a similarity between the psalm and the life of Jesus. And then, because we are in Christ, what is true for Christ is true for Christians. And that means that the psalms are also true for us in our lives. Think about that, that the songs and the prayers of a Judean shepherd and warrior fulfill our need and give us words that we can pray, that we can use some 3,000 years later. Not only are they prayers for our life here and now, but they even speak to our hope for the life to come. The Psalms do that in an obvious way. But you can see this in a lot of other literature, too. This is why things that were written thousands of years ago, like Homer's, Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey, still speak to people today. Because they, they talk, just as the Psalms do, they talk about things that are always true. The storyteller or the poet tells what always takes place, what is true for all people, all people who are created and redeemed by God in Christ. That's why you can say something that's true for all people. If we weren't, if we weren't from God, then we, we couldn't speak for all people. But because all people are created and redeemed by God in Christ, we can uh, speak and tell stories that are actually true for us uh, or true for all people. And if that's true, well, then ultimately the best storytellers will also tell us not only what has been, but what will be. The best stories will reflect, even in a dim way, our hope for another world. Dr. Kurt Marquardt, who is a professor at the Fort Wayne Seminary, once said this about Western civilization and about the Christians who built it. He said, while creating Western civilization, the early Christians' minds were on something else, like corals building the Great Barrier Reef. All these Christians created our Western civilization as the unplanned byproduct of their personal hope and labor. If we really wish to defend and extend our civilization, then we can do so only by imitating the builders whose real hope was elsewhere. And the glory of the Christian hope is that it is not offered to the world, but to living men and women for a life beyond." End quote. So the final reason that good stories reflect the image of God and man the final reason that good stories have something to say for all people is not because we are trying to create the perfect civilization 
here or the perfect system, or even that we're trying to create the perfectly educated man or woman here on earth. Civilization and education and literature, they are good things for this world, but they are not our final goal. Going back to our verse from, from Colossians chapter one, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. That means all things find their end, their goal, their telos in Christ. And the very best of our stories point us to that same end. We were not only created to reflect God's image as sub-creators in this world, but we were created to behold that image, to see God face to face, and to live and work with him in a new creation. One last quote from Tolkien. In a letter to his son, he wrote, There is a place called heaven where the good here, unfinished, is completed, and where the stories unwritten and the hopes unfulfilled are continued. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you, Pastor Dodgers. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.